blessing. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 21, just the end. I'm not going to really preach a whole lot on, on those final verses. It's more of a segue to what I really want to talk on, and that is the kingship of Josiah. But in chapter 21 of 2 Kings, we read the following. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Huraz of Jotbah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. For he walked in all the way that his father had walked and served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. So he forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. The servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. Then the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? He was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, became king in his place. Chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of, of Bodzkath. He did right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, quote, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought in to the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people." Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters and the builders and the masons for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands for they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, Quote, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, unquote. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought it back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people, and all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. 
to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, Asiah, and went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. She said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard that heard what I spoke against this place and against the inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Amen. Now, just to catch up where we have been over the last several weeks, Hezekiah, you remember congregation, boys and girls especially, Hezekiah was a good king, you remember, he did a lot of good things, but uh, after God had extended his life for 15 years, he had another son, had a son named Manasseh. Manasseh became king, he reigned over 50 years, and he did a great amount of evil before he finally came to repentance. After um, Manasseh, then you have Ammon, who we read about here at the end of this chapter, and then Ammon, we learned, did evil. He served idols. He forsook the Lord until he was assassinated. And then after he was assassinated, the people of God killed the men who assassinated King Ammon, and they make Josiah, a boy king, the king in his father's place. And that's where we come today. Now, Ammon's reign, because he was wicked, was mercifully short. Now, that's not always the case. Manasseh did great evil for a long time, and God allowed him to stay on the throne for over 50 years. But why does God sometimes allow some kings to do evil for a long time, and others he deals with very quickly? I don't know. It's part of the inscrutable and mysterious providence of God, but that's what God does. God deals with us according to his wisdom. And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, therefore, that we should not count the delay of the Lord's return as somehow God is unfaithful to his promise, but rather we should recognize it as a great mercy that God, even though we are great and in our wickedness and deserve another flood, though God's not going to bring another flood despite what happened last night, there's not going to be another flood. I thought it would never stop raining. I thought I was in Brazil last night lying in bed, all that rain. But God is not going to flood the earth again uh, with a, a torrential flood from the deeps within and from above. But, uh, but he is going to bring another judgment. 
and that is going to come with Jesus Christ coming again. He's going to judge all the nations, and every single and solitary person who's ever lived and has died will be raised from the dead, and they will appear before Jesus Christ. And Peter tells us that the delay of the Lord is a sign of patience, not a sign of unfaithfulness. Now here in Kings, we see that same principle. God is being patient with his people, not bringing them to a sudden end, but warning them lovingly and seeking that they would repent. So what we're going to do today is look at the, we're going to start King Josiah today. It's going to take us a couple weeks at least to work through the reign of Josiah, but we're going to look at Josiah today in three parts. Number one, we're going to see the restoration of the temple and recovery of the scriptures. Point number one, verses one through ten. The restoration of the temple and the recovery of the scriptures. Verses one through ten. Number two, verse 11 to 13, we're going to see the personal repentance of Josiah. The repentance of Josiah. And all these began with R. The first Two points began with R, and so I, I thought, I have to come up with a third point that begins with R. I'm, you know, it, homiletically make it interesting. Three, num- verses 14 to 20, the response of the Lord. The response of the Lord. So you have the, the restoration of the temple and the recovery of the scriptures. You have the repentance of Josiah, and you have the response of the Lord there. Verses 1 through 10, verses 11 through 13, and then verses 14 to 20. So those are our three points here. Now, let's take up here the first 10 verses. Look at your Bible again. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Notice here, I say this to you, young people. I want you to pay attention, young people, because notice here that God pays attention to you as a young person. All right, Josiah is a young person. He's eight years old. What's that, second grade? He's in second grade. And he is providentially made king over the people of God. He's a boy king. Now, yes, uh, surely, just as other uh, boy kings uh, have had tutors, no doubt that Josiah did too. And, and obviously, Josiah had some good tutors, even though he had a wicked father and a wicked grandfather until his grandfather repented at the end of his life. But here you've got a boy king, eight years old, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Tells us who his mama's name is, so that shows us moms are important. They're raising up the future generations within God's church and in the civil magistrate. So moms, take your job seriously. I know you do, but God here tells us what his mom's name is. Uh, Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord. Now this is speaking of Josiah. He walked in the way of his father David. He didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. So that's important for us to see. All right? That that the Bible is the path for the the people of God. We we don't go to an extreme right and get more right wing than the Bible. We don't get more left wing than the Bible. We don't turn to the right or to the left. We look and walk by the light of the Word of God. We don't want... The the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And to this, we look to the testimony uh, of the Scriptures. The Scriptures that we are told in 2 Timothy are sufficient for your faith and your life, your doctrine, and everything that you need of to walk with God in this life and the world to come is found in the Scriptures. 
And, and we don't need to exceed the scriptures with legalism. We don't need to come short of what the scriptures teach through antinomianism. That means against the law, doing less than what God tells us to do. We do what exactly what God says. We believe exactly what God teaches. We don't go beyond it, and we don't fall short of it. That's our job. We are reformed, and we are reforming. We're always seeking in our personal walk, in our family walk, in the life of this church, and in the life of the United States. We are seeking the dominion of Christ. We are seeking to walk by the word of God. We, we are to disciple the nations internationally, beyond the United States, to disciple all the nations with the word of God, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Everything I've commanded you. Not just a few points here or there. So this is what Josiah was seeking to do. We're told, that what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The totality of your being is to be devoted to God. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 12? He says the same thing, doesn't he? Present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Throwing yourself on the altar of God. You're dedicating the whole self. How do I dedicate myself to God? Well, I read the Bible. I study the scriptures. I meditate upon them day and night. I don't sit in the seat of scoffers. I don't stand in the way of the wicked. I make the law of God my delight. I make the scriptures my delight. I, like Ezekiel, I eat the whole book. Even if it makes my stomach bitter at times, as it did Ezekiel. He ate the book. John the Apostle, picking up the imagery of Ezekiel. What did he do? He ate the book. Here's the book. Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, eat this book. Now, that doesn't mean we tear the pages, boys and girls, and stick the paper in our mouth. What does it mean to eat this book? It means you read it. You make it a part of your life. Just like you eat food and it becomes a part of your body, you read the Bible. You listen to the Bible when mom and dad read it to you. And it becomes a part of your life. It becomes a part of your being. This is what Josiah did. And this is what gave Josiah the success he had in a day of apostasy. And this is what's going to give you and your family and the church success in the apostate days that we're living in. We need the Bible more than ever. We need the scriptures. Now, we're going to see the importance of that here when the scriptures come out of the temple. Now, uh, let's keep going, though. In the 18th year, King Josiah the king sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord. And he goes then to the high priest. And he says, you know, take up the offerings and pay the stone cutters, the masons, uh, the bricklayers, the, the carpenters, etc. And this temple has for over five decades been neglected and it's even been prostituted. Remember that, that they sometimes removed the altar of the Lord in order to put false altars in the courtyard. So this place has been desecrated uh, and has been neglected. And just like anything you would expect, whenever sin moves into a community, what happens? Things fall into disrepair. You go to Haiti. You know, some of our kids went to Haiti many years ago. What did they notice? What did our young people notice? They noticed the homes of the Christians were tidy and orderly. And the homes of the non-Christians were not. The homes of the non-Christians were in disrepair. And, and so it, it, when, when, when apostasy sets in, what happens? Disrepair follows. 
And so it is with this temple. After 50 years of Manasseh, followed by a couple years of Ammon, the place is a wreck. It's a mess. They need a reformation. And so uh, Josiah, first thing he does is, is repair the temple. Now, why is this important? Well, as I've said on several occasions, going through the book of Kings with you, this is significant because the temple is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so if the temple falls into disrepair, essentially what they're saying is Jesus Christ is not all that important to the life and the ministry of the church. Remember that Jesus supplants the temple. The temple is where the sacrifices are. And who is the sacrifice? Well, it's Christ. The lambs were offered in the Old Testament altar, but now the Lamb of God has come and he's taken away the sins of the world. The temple was the place where the word of God was preached. But now you have the word incarnate in Jesus Christ. So Jesus supplants the temple. And Jesus even prophesied in Matthew 24 that the temple one day would be destroyed. And it was by the Romans in AD 70. It's never been built back. And I think in God's providence, he's allowed the Muslims to occupy that place because he's not going to allow anybody, he's not going to allow the Jews to build it back. In his providence, he's going to keep it from being built back because a greater temple is being constructed in the world. That's a temple made of living stones, the spirit of God indwelling people and in Jesus Christ and forming a new covenant temple that exists all over the world. Now, um, so th- th- it, was, it was very significant um, that, that the temple be repaired. Now, as they're doing these repairs, uh, something happens. And it, it is almost really astounding uh, that you would think that the, the church of Israel in its day could fall into such spiritual disrepair. But as they are doing the repairs, there is a discovery. And it seems that a copy of the scriptures is found in the temple. And that as they read the scriptures, they realize that this is important, and they realize that this is the word of God, and that it needs to be brought back to the king. And so they bring it back to the king, and they read the scriptures in his hearing. Now this is amazing when you think about it that the scriptures were lost in the church. Now, if you go back to the reign, let's say the end of the reign of Hezekiah. All right, so we have Hezekiah coming to his end. You have 55 years of King Manasseh, most of whom were unfaithful years. 55 years of Manasseh. You have two years of an unfaithful Ammon. And then you have Josiah, now who, though he was faithful, we are told that it was in the 18th year of Hezekiah, of, uh, excuse me, of Josiah. Now, when it says the 18th year, I take that to be the 18th year of his reign, not when he became 18. When you add up all those years, you get 75 years that the scriptures seemingly were lost and hidden. Now, that's the span of... Of a lifetime, isn't it? If you had been born in the last year of King Hezekiah's life, you would have lived almost the entirety of your life, if not the entirety of it, without seemingly the scriptures being proclaimed and read in the temple. So we see here the need, the desperate need for the Reformation. 
in Josiah's day. Now, I, of course, you probably can guess where I want to go with this application <laughs> as a good Protestant. Have we not seen in the history of the church, too, where though the scriptures may not have been literally lost, but have been lost, in, at least in terms of the public reading and preaching of them. Do you realize, boys and girls, prior to the Protestant Reformation, that the Bible that you and I take for granted was read in churches in Latin, and it was uh, preached in Latin. Most people, unless you had a high degree of level of education, you don't know Latin in that day. And so that people would come to church and they would sit there and they would watch a service, most of which was done in a language that they did not understand, and then they would see the Mass performed. And then they'd go home. And oftentimes they weren't even allowed to partake of the Mass. That's what the church had in the late medieval age. Did you know that we are told, if the historians are, are accurate, that in, in Scotland, where, of course, the Reformation in some ways shone brightest, the priests didn't even know what they were saying. They memorized the Latin phrases, but they didn't know what it meant. So you have even the priests who were completely ignorant of the scriptures themselves. And if anybody came and asked the priest a question about something, even the priest didn't know. Oftentimes, the answer. That's the amount of scriptural darkness that enveloped the church by the early 1500s. What did God do, though? And it's not to say that God didn't have his own people, you know, prior to the Reformation. He certainly did. You have your, your Wycliffs and your Husses and others. Um, but what did they do? They, they recovered the scriptures, didn't they? What brought about the Protestant Reformation under God? It was, in many ways, it, it, you know, first it was a common grace invention of the printing press. And then after we have the invention in Gutenberg in Germany, you know, and it's in many ways parallels what we see, I think, with the internet today. The scriptures going out around the world to people who couldn't get a seminary education you know, if you're a pastor in a third world country, and now if you, can, if you know English or you know you've got an internet connection, now you can get seminary level training. And so I think God is doing in some ways similar things here today uh, in, in people who formerly really didn't have as much access to the scriptures as they would have liked. But it started with the Bible. And, and when the church loses the scriptures, we lose Christ. And so when the Bible is either literally or figuratively hidden from the people, Christ is also hidden from the people. And that's why we have to be always about the Bible. We have to read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, um, display the Bible in the sacraments, as Terry Johnson likes to say. He's the, for those who don't know, he's the pastor at Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah. So it, it, was, a, it was a reformation that really began with the scriptures. Now, Josiah, yes, he was a godly man prior to the finding of the Bible. He probably knew something of the scriptures, at least by oral tradition, right? But the, it says here that, that, that they found the Bible and they began to read it. 
It says here that um, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And that leads us to the second point here, the, the repentance of Josiah. The first thing that Josiah does is something that seems a little strange to us, boys and girls. What did Josiah do? He listens to the Bible being read, and he suddenly he rends his clothing. Now, to rend your clothing or tear your clothing, that was a symbolic sign of grief, of sadness, of mourning. Josiah was tearing his clothes as a display, an outward display of tremendous grief because he realized how far short they had fallen as a people to the will of God. You can imagine the shock to the system. You know, one of the things that amazes me as a, I was a history major in college, and one of the things that amazes me about the Protestant Reformation is how much that first generation of the Reformers got it right given the darkness that they came out of. You imagine living in a, in a cave in so many senses and suddenly finding your way out of this deep, cavernous place into the light of the world, of the scriptures. And the, you no doubt there has to be a little rubbing of the eyes, but what happens, you realize what darkness and superstition you formerly were in. And I think this is what was overwhelming Josiah. He knew the condition of the people of God compared to what was being read in the Bible. And all he can think about is what grief and mourning there should be that we have offended so holy and righteous a God he is overwhelmed. One of the things that we see historically in the church is that when God has brought seasons of revival uh, into the life of the church, um, it is not always what you expect. I think when we think of revival, we often expect there's uh, this great uh, abundance of rejoicing and joy and excitement and and such, and there is that often, but you know, it's often preceded by the very opposite. I remember uh, we had some missionaries many decades ago in Korea at the beginning of the 20th century, and they, they wrote about it in this Korean Pentecost was the title of the book. And what shocked me was how this missionary, American missionary in Korea said, when he saw the beginnings of the revival break out in Korea, you know in Korea there was a great revival in 1905. He said, I never wanted to see that again. Now that seems strange, doesn't it, to hear from a missionary. But the reason he said that sentence, the reason it, it was, but what he saw first was so disturbing to him. Because suddenly there was such a heavy conviction of sin that the most vile and awful sins were being publicly confessed in the room. They were so overwhelmed with the presence of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. He's, he, they said, he, what was interesting, the missionary also said that you don't have to worry about whether sin will be confessed in a time of revival. It will be confessed. It is almost like if there is not this cathartic release of the guilt and, and awfulness of the sin there, there will be no healing, and, and it will come out. God will see to it. And he said, I never wanted to hear that again, almost. 
so awful were the terrible things that were being acknowledged. And I think there's that sense that Josiah's got here that when he comes face to face, and I, I sometimes wonder at what point in the scriptures what was being read when he tore his garments. I can't help but think it was Deuteronomy. Uh, where the law is so plainly revealed. It, it might have been their chapters in Leviticus too, where I could see one would just completely rend their garments. Because in those chapters where it says, cursed is the man who does this, and cursed is the man who does that. And, and where you, you just, you have to say, stop. I, I can't, I can't take any more. I, I have to rend my garments at this point. I have to repent. What does the Shorter Catechism say? In question 87, our Shorter Catechism teaches repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a, listen to this, a true sense of his sin, not a superficial sense of his sin. Oh, you know, we all make mistakes. No, out of an overwhelming sense of guilt, of dread, of judgment, where you cry out, I am the chief of sinners. Where, where you, you almost come to the point of agreement with God. I, be, I deserve, I should be in hell. Out of a true sense of his sin, but it doesn't stop there. And apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin, the rending of the garment, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. This is what I think Josiah was experiencing. You know, Josiah, I think, is a, a case study for us today why the law of God needs to be preached. I don't understand denominations, honestly, that think the Old Testament is irrelevant. And the wickedness that goes on, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, we, you know, Josiah is a case study, I think, why we need the law of God. We need the law of God because we need to see where our natural condition lies and that Jesus is the only hope. I think all too often ministers, and maybe I'm guilty of this at times, are, are all too quick to get to the, to the balm of Gilead. And the person isn't even convinced of his wound yet. He isn't even convinced that he, he is a sinner who should be spending eternity under condemnation. And the law of God is what needs to be preached with the gospel. We need the law of God because we need to see the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. We need to see the awfulness of our sin. It's not just that I've made a few mistakes uh, that I regret. But rather that I have, I have transgressed the entirety of God's law. In the New Testament, Paul tells us, if we have transgressed, if we are guilty at one point, we have violated the whole of the law of God, James tells us. The law increases our knowledge of sin. The Apostle Paul says, how would I know what coveting is if the law did not say, thou shall not covet? And I need the law to press down on me in detail. That's why I encourage you to study the larger catechism under the, on the Ten Commandments and read all the ways in which we violate the Ten Commandments of God in, in all its details. And you realize, wow, how exhaustive 
the Westminster divines were when they were expounding the, 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 the moral will of God for our lives. And the, all the different ways we murder, all the different ways we commit adultery, all the different ways we steal. We steal in, a, in, a, in dozens of ways. And so Josiah begins to repent. He begins to recognize that not only he, but as a king, but he's not repenting just for himself. He, he's tearing his garments, really, as a type of Christ for the, the whole condition of the church. What, what, does, what does he say here? He says, go inquire of the Lord for me and the people. This is verse 13. Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. He says, for great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. I wonder how many people feel like the wrath of the Lord is burning against us today. He said, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah recognizes the true condition. That's the place where healing begins. When you recognize your utter depravity, your utter uh, hopeless condition, then you're ready for Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus isn't just making your best life better now. Jesus Christ is somebody who really rescues you, saves you, redeems you, washes you. And so... Uh, we see, secondly, the repentance of Josiah. We see the restoration of the temple, the reformation of the, uh, the reclamation of the Bible, the repentance of Josiah, the response of the Lord. Now let's look at verses 14 to 20, and I have some applications for us as well here. Look at verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, Asiah, Huldah, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, and they inquired of the Lord through this prophetess. Now, what does she say in verse 15? Thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, that is, tell Josiah, King Josiah, thus says the Lord. It's interesting, she calls him the man. Tell the man, <laughs> just like he, he's any, any old man, tell the man, thus says the Lord, behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Now, what are all, what's all the evil that's being spoken of that would have been read? This is why I tend to think that it may have very well been Deuteronomy that was being read to Josiah. Because if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, you know, Deuteronomy, Moses tells us here what happens when, when the people of God are unfaithful. And, and when it says the Lord will send... If, that is, if the people of God will not do these things, obey the words of the Lord, what does Moses say? Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket. Cursed shall be your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body. Cursed shall be the increase of the herd of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, rebuke in all you undertake to do until you're destroyed until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me, says the Lord. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you. The Lord will smite you with consumption, with fever, inflammation, fiery heat, the sword, blight, mildew. They will pursue you until you perish. 
The heaven which is over your head will be bronze and the earth that is under you will be iron, meaning there's going to be a drought and the earth is going to dry up. You're going to have no crops. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder, dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. You will be defeated before your enemies. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds of the sky. And it just goes on and on and on. And I've just, I mean, I've just read you the, you know, about 10 verses. It goes all the way to verse 68. Read it sometime. And so what, what is the prophet is saying here? Hold us saying this. The evil that was spoken of in the words of the book, that is, I think it's Deuteronomy, is going to come upon you because you have violated my law. Judgment begins with the house of Israel. He says, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it will not be quenched. They've already, they have already crossed, I think, a line that even if they repent, the judgment is still coming against them. I remember when I was in seminary, I believe, and R.C. Sproul said, I had him for Christian ethics. And he said he didn't know, and nobody does. Nobody knows the providence of God. But he did say it's possible that America has already crossed the line given the number of prenatal abortions we've committed, the number of people made in the image of God that we have destroyed in the womb. When you think about it, because what, what, what is being brought upon them? Is it not for the sins of Manasseh here chiefly? It, it, it is because of all the evil. Remember, what did the, the scripture say here? It said that Manasseh filled up the land of Judah with blood. And so it's, it, it is a, a severe word coming from God, but there's mercy in the midst of the severity. You know how Paul says in Romans, behold, when he's talking about the doctrine of election, and he says, you know, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You remember how he says that? And what does he say? He tells us as Christians, he says, behold the mercy and the severity of the Lord. To the unbeliever, severity, judgment. To those to whom are the elect, grace and mercy. You see, grace is not grace if grace is dependent on, on you. Grace is grace because it's dependent on God who shows grace and mercy. It's not we who save ourselves. It's God who saves us. It's God who chooses us. It's God who sends Jesus, sends Jesus into the world. It's God who sends the Spirit into our heart to believe on Jesus Christ. It's God who gives us the gift of repentance to turn away from our sins. It's God, even Ephesians 2 tells us, is, gives us the gift of faith that we place in Jesus Christ. It's all of the Lord. It's all of grace. And thankfully, Josiah has been given grace to believe and to turn. But to those in Judah in his day who will not choose the same as Josiah did to them, it will be severity and judgment. Now, I want to say a few things by way of application here. Number one is this. Repentance always is a good idea, personally, even if your neighbors and your nation do not repent. 
I'll say that again. Repentance is always good and safe for you personally and for your family, even if your neighbors and your nation do not repent. What do I mean by that? Notice here, verse 19, that though God is determined to bring judgment against Judah for all the sins that they and their fathers have committed, nevertheless, because of Josiah's tenderness towards the word of the Lord, his willingness to rend his heart, rend his garments, repent and believe on the Lord, it says what in verse 19? Because your heart was tender, Josiah, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. That is, notice here that the Lord, who, whose eye is upon the sparrow, he's, his eye is upon the individual poor Christian who lives in an apostate culture. And even though that judgment may come upon the culture, God may yet show mercy upon your family because of your faith and repentance in the Lord, though judgment come corporately. Now, I know theologians are debating, even today in the Reformed faith, does God judge nations as nations? I tend to think he still does. I think there's good evidence that, you know, look how many times God speaks to the nations outside of Israel. How many times does God speak to the nation of Moab? How many times does God speak to the people of Nineveh as a people? So yes, I do think that if God should bring a a judgment against us as a nation for our sins, it behooves you as an individual Christian, as a family of Christians, to do your own repenting and believing because God may yet have mercy on you in the midst of the judgment. Now, I'm not saying that you you won't in any way participate in some of the sufferings that may corporately come upon us if God does bring judgment upon us as a nation. You know, things happen, wars happen, and sometimes the Christians in the war also die, not just the non-believers. But it is always safe, even if, if calamity should come upon us, even if we should die. We are presently in the, in the presence of God due to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an example of this. Uh, if you have your Bible, look at Jeremiah chapter 38. Here's an example of what I'm talking about in Jeremiah chapter 38. Now, Jeremiah, you know, his ministry was a ministry of preaching and warning the people of God about the judgment that was to come right before the Babylonian captivity and even during the Babylonian captivity. Remember, he, he's that transition prophet that, that's doing his ministry prior to the captivity and during the captivity, at least the beginning of the captivity. And in, in Jeremiah chapter 38, Um, Thus says the Lord. Here's the Lord speaking. He says, He who stays in this city, namely Jerusalem, he who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. Judgment's already been decreed by God. This Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. So Jeremiah is telling the people, telling the king, surrender yourself into the hands of Babylon and God will have mercy on you. But you know the story, Zedekiah is not going to do it, right? He says, the city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of of Babylon. Verse 4, then the official said to the king, now let this man be put to death. That is, they don't like the message, right? So what's the answer? 
same as it is today. Kill the messenger, right? We don't like the message. We'll, if we'll just get, we'll, we won't go and, and repent. We'll get rid of the messenger. So they say, inasmuch as he, Jeremiah, is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them, for this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. So Zedekiah said, behold, he is in your hands, coward. He says, oh, you guys just do what you want. He won't rescue Jeremiah, for the king can do nothing against you. Then they took Jeremiah, and what did they do? They throw him in a cistern. Now look at verse 7. But Ebed-Melech, and the Ethiopian. So here you've got this one Ethiopian eunuch. And while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern. And I'll just tell you what happens. This one Ethiopian eunuch basically says, this isn't right. And he gets uh, a, a group together and they get some old clothes and rags and they tie them together and they lower it down into the cistern. Remember, Jeremiah has been thrown into this cistern that's, that's muddy, and he's up to his armpits in mud, left there to die. And this one Ethiopian eunuch, though, fears God. And because of his fear of God, he says, this isn't right. We have to rescue this man of God out of this cistern. And so they lower the rags down, and they tell Jeremiah, put a rag under each of your armpit in, in the loops, put your arms in the loops, and they pull him up out of the well. And what does God do? It's interesting. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. And he says, even though I'm going to destroy this place, in the midst of all this destruction, I'm going to make certain that that Ethiopian eunuch is saved in it all. Almost like Rahab and Jericho. Even though I'm going to destroy all of Jericho, Rahab and her family are going to be saved. Same with the Ethiopian eunuch. This word is for you. You'll be saved. And so what we see here is that a repentance is always a good idea at a personal level, even if our neighbors won't repent. Listen, I've said this before, boys and girls, do not get your Christianity from what everybody else is doing. Get your Christianity from the Bible. Don't say, well, Sally's a Christian and she does that, even though the Bible says don't do that. Don't look at Sally as your standard for how God wants you to live. You look at what Jesus has said. You look at what Paul has said. You look at what Moses has written. That's your standard. Don't be, don't be looking at your peers for the standard of obedience. Sally probably doesn't know a whole lot. So God may have mercy on you and your family while judgment is falling collectively on us as a nation. God may be giving our nation over to a reprobate mind. I'm amazed at the at seemingly new levels of stupidity that are going on now in, in our nation. You've seen it in the news as well. And I'm not speaking about political things. I'm talking about things pertaining to you know, being a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. Things that have to do with being made in the image of God and, and, and as one who is created by God and it is like we're losing our mind. We don't know which bathroom to choose. Um, we don't know what a day may bring. The Bible tells, Proverbs tells us that. And therefore, we should always be seeking to repent. Um, 
I, I, I didn't know whether to give this illustration or not, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it. But I'm going to give it with a big, big, big caveat, okay? Don't go out here. Well, let me get to that later. Let's just say this. <laughs> I think I'm not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet, okay? Let's make that clear. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. None. No idea what a day may bring. I have no idea what, what the situation will be like in a year. But I do know what God's done in the past. I know something about it. And it's interesting when you look that in the last two major conflagrations that this country has been involved in historically, namely World War I and World War II, what happened? A problem developed in Eastern Europe, didn't it? Now, for a while, it didn't affect us. Um, Ferdinand is assassinated on June 28, 1914. And a month later, Eastern nations are at war and because they're in alliances. Suddenly, July 28, 1914, World War I begins. Now, we weren't involved for another 33 months. That's over two-plus years. We are sitting fat and happy over here in the United States. World War II... September 1, 1939, Hitler invades Poland. Again, Eastern Europe. I know some of you want to say it was Japan invading Manchuria, and I, I, and I understand that, but just go with me. <laughs> we don't get involved for what? Another 27 months or so? December 7, 1941. Um, now we've got another problem in Eastern Europe, February 24th, 2022, Russia invades Ukraine. I, am, I don't want you going out here and say, our pastor said World War III starting at the end of this year. I'm not saying that. I don't know. But I'm saying we don't know too. And I'm saying it behooves us to be right with the Lord. And, and that uh, we, we need to, you know, like Josiah, maybe rend our garments I remember Dr. Sinclair Ferguson saying one time that uh, the, you know, the problem with evangelicalism, one of the problems he said with evangelicalism is we're not discouraged enough. We're not discouraged enough. So I want you to think about that. We don't know what God may do, but we should therefore examine our lives carefully, take inventory of our souls, our sins, our faithfulness, and we should, wherever... There is need for repentance. Seek to do it with new obedience unto, as our short catechism.